0: You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry.
1: What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 188. And like a lot of episodes, this is the first Friday Q&A, so it is the first Friday of the month. You guys ask questions and we try to answer them. So what's going on, Mark? What's going on is
0: we totally accidentally have this one out and release when it actually is the first Friday, which we never do. Hey, Jake, have you upgraded to Mojave yet? The Apple OS X? I don't think it's Mojave. It's Catalina. Right. Oh, it's Catalina. I'm sorry. You're right. It is Catalina. Have, but have you upgraded? I have not because it bricked my wife's computer. Yeah, I had issues with it too. And the thing I'm slightly disappointed is I usually don't have problems with Apple upgrades or Apple products at all. And it was a bit disappointing. So I actually had to restore my machine from time capsule and then install it the second time and it worked well. But, you know, come on, Apple, a little bit more quality control before you release something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's kind of ridiculous for a company of that size. And the other day, the App Store, the iTunes Store, iTunes Music, all of that was down for about six to eight hours, which I think is also kind of ridiculous for a company of that size.
0: I do like they split up. They got rid of they have a separate app now on the desktop for podcasts and for music and for TV. That needed to have happened because iTunes just got too clunky.
1: Yeah, it had too many. There was too many features kind of jam-packed into one app. Yeah, So anyway, I'm sure nobody wrote in a question about Apple's uh, software upgrade. So (laughs) what questions do we have, Jake? All right. We got a lot of questions this month. So let's just dive right in. So we've got a question from Preet from Calgary. Hey right, guys, love the show. This is the first show I've started listening to when I was introduced to in the podcast two years ago and I've been hooked ever since. Well, thank you for listening. Pre- appreciate it. The question is that I recently heard an interview with the author of the book, Saudi America, that talks about the faults of the energy industry and in fracking. Have you read this book or have any thoughts on this? And they put a link to the book in there as well. So both of us have actually read this book. I read it last month. I think it was a great read. Mark, do you want to start off and then I'll, I'll pick it up?
0: Yeah. So I actually also read it too, which I think this is the first time anybody's asked us about a book and we've both actually read it. Not super fan of the book. I and mean, they don't do much bashing about fracking. What she really talks about is the, the business model is not legit and that it's not a long-term game. It's more of a short-term game and the future of it's very unclear. A lot of people out there, a lot of very smart people out there would agree with her about that. I don't agree with that. Jake and I are probably getting that for a little bit, a little bit further down the road. And then she does bash us a little bit as Far as far as a country, as U.S. is not being caught up with the rest of the world as far as renewables. I don't really have an opinion on that one way or the other. Energy's energy and whatever our mix is is going to be different with other countries' mixes, And that will change every month as we go through time. So, But if you're in the oil and gas industry, it's actually a worthwhile read because she gives you a, a different point of view than a lot of people were talking about the shell fields You know, just a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So to guess answer to this question shortly, I'm not a super fan of the author of the book, which is Bethany McLean. She's written a few things. I'm not, I don't really agree with all of her stance on on a lot of things that she talks about publicly. I also don't follow her super religiously, so I don't know necessarily all of her stances on everything, but just the few that I've heard, I don't necessarily agree with. Saudi America, I thought was a good book in terms of documenting kind of the shale boom. Particularly, they follow the story of Aubrey McClendon, who was, you know, the famed godfather of shale, or one of them kind of popularized it and helped kind of. Make shell what it is today, and if you're not familiar with Aubrey McClendon, he was the CEO, co-founder of Chesapeake Energy, which is you know still a huge company today, worth a lot less now than it was then. This is a very broad question, so I'm trying to hone in on, on on which part to actually tackle here. Shale as a business model, I believe, is extremely broken, looking at tons and tons of data. When I'm not podcasting, that's what I spend a lot of my time doing with one of our teams. We're going through and, and looking at a lot of the type curves for pretty much every shale basin in the U.S. currently. And there's a huge issue with the capital structure in shale, and I'll kind of leave it at that. It doesn't mean the wells are necessarily bad. It just means that once the money is, you know, it flows from the wellhead, there's not a lot of returns that are passed on to the investors. And so, you know, as an industry, I think the top 20 frackers in the U.S. burned through 280 billion more than they've made over the past 10 years. And so, Wall Street is beginning to wonder when are we going to get paid? You know, when are we going to make our money? When are we going to make our money back? And it's it's oh well, higher prices are coming. Oh well, we're getting better at the process of shale. How much more time do you absolutely need? And it's not to say that the wells are bad. It's not to say that this is that shale is going to be completely over. There's going to be a major restructuring. There's a lot of things that are going to happen in the industry that are absolutely essential, that are that are necessary. As we've talked about numerous times over the past few episodes, there's going to be a significant amount of bankruptcies, more mergers, more acquisitions, but it's all for the greater good. Shale's not going anywhere, but shale in its current form is not sustainable. It is not sustainable without major injections of cash. And when that cash dries up, you don't really have many options, especially when you've got a, a significant amount of outstanding debt. If you can't go out there you can't drill your returns, you, you can't necessarily stop drilling because then your production stops. So therefore your revenue tanks. So therefore you can't make payments, you can't even make interest payments on on the debt, you know, especially if you're two, three, four X levered up like most of these guys are, you're in a pretty bad position. You know, so it isn't quite sustainable in its current form, but I think there's a version 2.0 or whatever version you want to call it that will be kind of making its appearance here soon. Yeah, so I agree with everything you everything you
0: said, Jake. And a lot of people in our industry and upstream are starting to talk about this as as being an unsustainable model, especially around capital efficiencies. This is what I think is going to happen, and, and I agree. I mean, absolutely. If you crunch a number, hundred percent, this is what I think is going to happen. Though, just like offshore was a bunch of independent operators in the '40s and in the '50s, the majors started. F- capitalizing offshore. I think the same thing happened on land. So one thing is people talk about the decline curve. Yes, the decline curve is very short for a shell well, but you have to remember even the best operator only gets 15% of those hydrocarbons out the ground, which leaves 85% of them there. There's a bunch of new well stimulation techniques come that's going to open up that decline curve. Now, the only companies that have enough money and enough scientific horsepower to to come up with new well stimulation techniques. And I'm talking about things like nanoparticles, biologicals, that sort of are the majors, right? At the same time, the majors own when they come into a shell field they buy the mineral rights they don't lease them so that gives them a 30 cents to a dollar 50 more barrel per profit and they don't have to go in production the independents by contract have to go in production to hit certain production metrics and it's like this domino game right so the, the independents drill they drill it on barred cash, they make money, and then they borrow more cash to drill the next well, but the majors don't have to operate that way. So I think you can see some scientific breakthroughs in the next couple of years combined with the capital efficiency driven by the majors who, once again, don't have to borrow money from Wall Street and, at the same time, own the mineral rights. And I, I think the Shell game is a rock-solid game. I think you can see it spread globally. Once we figure out – what do you call it? Shell 2.0? That's a good name for it. Once we figure out Shell 2.0, I think that process and the way that's done in those Techniques will be just uh, replicated around the rest of the world. I think it's taken about 10 years to get there. But, but as far as the book, it's worth reading. I mean, like Jake said, not super fan of the author, but there is definitely change coming to come to Shellfields for sure. And fortunately, it's going to cause a lot of angst and hurt. We just got to get through it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So a great question. Up next, we have a question from Alex, who's self-employed. Says, hey guys, thanks for taking the time out of your busy lives to inform and educate the masses. I have a few questions I'd like your opinion on. First question, with LNG fast becoming the fuel of the future because it's abundant, cheap, and has a high combustion efficiency and clean, more operators are starting to require contractors and service companies like Halliburton, Schlumberger, and Liberty Oilfield services that offer energy-intensive operations such as fracking to offer fleets that run on natural gas. There's a startup out of Boston from MIT making predictions to deliver technology that powers commercial aircraft with LNG by 2032. Is this feasible with the FFA grounding aircraft for simply for simple battery issues?
0: So it's, it's
1: absolutely feasible. Does it make economic sense?
0: So the problem with LNG is it does not have as many BTUs per ounce of energy as jet fuel. And when you're trying to lift airplane and the people and the cargo in the air, you need as much power for the least amount of weight as possible. And so will it work? Yes. Can you do it? Yes. actually probably can do it now. Does it make economic sense? I don't think so. So I think the economics will keep it from ever becoming a big thing. The other thing is even if you run LNG in a jet turbine engine, your, your CO2 emissions are going to be more or less the same as it would be if you run a jet fuel. Jet engines are so efficient compared to piston internal combustion engines that you basically get the same amount of emissions per kilowatt of output, regardless of what you pour into it. Jake, you know what M1 Abrams is? Yep. So M1 Abrams runs a jet turbine engine, right? You can pour anything into that engine, it'll run. You can pour whiskey, you can pour ethanol, you can pour gasoline, diesel, kerosene, and it will run. Sort of the same way with commercial airplane, they will run on anything, but you want the most power for the least amount of weight as possible. And liquids, especially, are heavy. I mean, you know, jet fuel is around six pounds a gallon, LNG is about five and a half pounds per gallon. So, you know, you get so much more output from jet fuel. I just don't see it making economic sense. Anyway, what's the next question? I'm sorry, Jake, do you have a a comment on that?
1: No, no, I agree. I agree. I haven't followed LNG as much as as you have. So, I mean, I I think that makes sense. Next question is also, New York politicians have refused to issue permits to a critical pipeline scheduled to bring natural gas to New York City on grounds of environmental concerns. Uh, With winter fast approaching national grid, the gas company is denying thousands of New York's businesses gas until the pipeline is given the green light.
0: Thoughts. So here's something that I've been thinking about for a while, and it applies to California, applies to New York as well. So the reason that these people aren't able to heat their homes in the winter is the political stance and the way they voted in the past, in the past 10, 15 years, right? And so what happens is because of the way they vote politically, it drives the cost of living up. You're seeing this going on in California right now to the point where you can't, your house in the winter, right? Or you can't have electricity. Well, then these people, because the cost of living gets so high, move out of their states and they move to places like Texas. But they bring their political beliefs with them, not understanding that it's their political beliefs that cause the cost of living to go up in their state. And so now I'm worried about the other states that get it. And we welcome you. I mean, here in Texas, we welcome you anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world, you want to come live here, it's great. Just understand that the way you vote and the way you think politically contributes to the cost of living, please don't bring that to other states. If you can't afford to live where you go and you move, realize
1: that it's your politics and just back up and, and try to figure out what the truth actually really is. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really, really good point, especially because we're seeing a mass from from California, from New York, from the more expensive states to places like Texas.
0: It's such a big deal and that, that we've been paying attention to. It, it almost made it my predictions for 2020. It didn't, but it probably would have been number 11, right? Because it's going to then, unfortunately, what I don't want to see happen, and I'm seeing it starting to happen now, I'm seeing uh, bits and pieces of it here in Texas, is the people from California are changing the political give and take that we have here in Texas to, to a little bit more to the left side. And then that's going to start causing things like taxes and, you know, different types of in- get incentives from the state government that's going to drive the cost of living up. And, you know, here in Houston, this is probably one of the cheapest places I've lived anywhere in the world. And it's awesome. I just don't want to see that change. I don't want to see that, our cheap lifestyle change.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Up next, we have another question from Marcia, who's a special project manager in the state of Wyoming. Do you know of any states that have combined oil and gas rules for OSHA? If so, can you give me any contact names, emails, phone numbers? (laughs) Thank you. Are you trying to pawn your work on... Off on us, Marcy, yeah, yeah, Marcy. I think that's what you're doing. I don't
0: know of any OSHA's federal government. The states have their own rules and regulations. OSHA has a bunch of standards and rules around the oil and gas industry, but it's at the federal level, not the state level. I I can see states maybe that don't have a big budget or that believe that the OSHA rules and regulations are really good to just adopt them. You know. Per se, but I don't think they'd ever work together. The other thing that would bother me about that a little bit is, you know, the states' rights. You know, does the federal government have the ability to come in, you know, and it force their way on the states? They do at some point, but at other times, you know, the states need to make those rules and regulations. So, hey, if any of our audience knows of anybody that have combined oil and gas rules for OSHA,
1: let us know. We'll connect you
0: with Marcia or Marcia, I think.
1: All right next is from an anonymous wireline engineer works at oil field service companies. Ooh, man, this is long. All right, guys. I think I have to read this to give context. So let me just read it and go for it. So on your October 7th show, you discussed diversity and specifically women in the oil field. One reason I love your show is that it's always a conversation, even when readers send in viewpoints that diverge. So I'd like to give you my perspective. I'm a second generation oil and gas engineer working in Texas with a petroleum engineering degree and almost three years of work, specifically field work experience. My overall opinion of women in the industry is that Efforts, and it is true and sustained effort, to hire them are HR deep, quote unquote, and often a basically shallow attempt by a company to improve their public image by having acute engineering coveralls on their PR material. I work extremely hard climb under equipment and get covered with grease. I've done well working in the field and running a field crew, mostly because they see I'm not afraid of jumping in and getting dirty, even though I'm the engineer. I have to work hard and run jobs successfully. My husband died in Afghanistan and I have a disabled brother to support. I've been treated pretty well overall in the field by field personnel, but who I felt I've been truly mistreated and at times abused by is management. I've been terminated for refusing refusing to date a former manager at another place. I was often singled out for abuse and was often saved by other field engineers and crews vouching for me. Many specific incidents to long be explained here have happened that contribute to me saying that my experience at times has been pretty crappy. Industry statistics show that a lot of women are currently being hired, but the numbers from the last couple of years show really poor retainment. Basically, they aren't treated well and they leave. While many people see me as being very successful in this business, I don't know if I'd recommend it to women. HR overtures about diversity, inclusion, and protection from harassment are at best disingenuous and at worst mostly about protecting the company from being liable in a harassment lawsuit. Making a good work environment for women is about respecting their hard work and effort, not treating them like a diversity prop, fairly compensating them, and not firing them for refusing to sleep with a supervisor. I've grown tired of companies crowing to how they buy FR clothing for women and whatever else. Of course, it's nice for your FR coveralls to fit, and I really would know, but this is even better is being respected for working hard and being dedicated to your job. I know you mean very well when talking about increasing diversity, and inclusion of women, but coming from women who've worked in the field for service companies, the industry has a very long way to go to come to actually treating women well on a timeline that goes beyond recruitment, new hire orientation, and procuring coveralls. Wow. That's very well written.
0: Extremely well written. You know, I almost wish I would've, we would have read this ahead of time and maybe got your Masiel and, and Jamie, is that her name? Yep. To have them answer this question because I, I feel – that it almost it's not quite right for me to answer as a man, which you know, you and I have talked about this a whole bunch on the show. This is actually one of the most reoccurring things we get. We get different opinions about this, and you know, first thing, I'm sorry that that you've been treated you know crappy. That's just not fair. Second thing is I just don't see it, and I'm not saying you're wrong. I mean, I'm sure what you live through is, is legit and true. You know, everybody has a different viewpoint. Every everybody has different accesses. I'm almost never in the field. I tend to be in the corporate offices of stuff. But I do see it getting better. I remember when I got started 20-some-odd years ago, the only women you saw in oil and gas companies were admins. And I just think it's super cool that now women are everywhere. I mean, I don't, I don't even think of it twice. I mean, you know, you look at OGGN, we're over 50% females, and that wasn't done on purpose. That's no number I'm trying to hit. We just hire the best people we can. It just happens to be that a little bit over half of our are women.
1: What's your thoughts on this, Jake? You know, I haven't seen it firsthand because for one, I'm not a woman, right? So let's go ahead and establish that. And I also haven't worked in the field, but I can see some parallels between this and the Marines. Yeah, I can see it. And I, and I've also talked to a few females who've worked in the field recently. I've had the, the pleasure of doing that and hearing some of their expenses, their experiences, and it's been a little bit less than wonderful for them. And they're all actually looking to move, not necessarily out of the industry, but out of all field positions overall. So like I said, it's not for me to say that it does or doesn't happen because I wouldn't know, but it is unfortunate that this has happened to you. And so if you have more experiences like this or any other listeners, write in, let us know about it. I'm not sure we'll talk about it every show, but it's something that there needs to be a light shined on this. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. So I guess we do have a long ways to go as an industry. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely need to
0: to keep this dialogue going. So the more of y'all can write in and tell us about your experiences, the more that we can share
1: your stories, the better it is for everybody. Go to the next one, Jake, because it's sort of related. Next question is from Matthew who's an MWE MWD field engineer at Halliburton. This is not a question but something I would like to share about diversity in our industry. I work in the field mostly in Texas and Louisiana and I've not considered any racial or sexist or I've not experienced any racial or sexist behavior in my 6-year career as a field employee. From what I noticed, our district is hiring a lot more females as field employees and personally know a handful that are in senior positions as well. My last trainee was a female from India. In my experience, rig hands go above and beyond to make sure that the work environment on the rig is suitable and accommodating to females. I have attended many pre-tour and safety meetings where the topic was understanding that a female was on site and that we are all professionals in this industry. So, I mean, I can also see parallels between the Marine Corps as well in this, just going from unit to unit, the way that a lot of things were handled, particularly females, would change based on who the management was. Mark, back when you were in the Marines, there probably wasn't females around. Uh, no, Yeah. There's, well, there's a lot of females, well, at least when I was in. I mean, I was in 10 years ago, but there was a lot of females and how they were treated and how they were included or excluded in activities was really highly dependent upon the management. And I could see the same thing being said about this case as well.
0: Yeah. And when I say no, there was no female infantry. There were women that worked in the Marine Corps, but they weren't ever in the battlefield. I actually, so I have, I don't know if we should get into this now. I have two opposing thoughts about that. I think it's awesome that women are in the Marine Corps. Did you see the woman that made the, uh, what's the Army's air ranger that she've completed the physical to become a ranger? Isn't that incredible? Wow, And the Marines actually have one or two female fighter pilots, which I, I think is incredible. You know, I, once again, we as either Marines or soldiers or airmen or sailors or all field workers, you know, Jake, I agree with you. It, a lot of it depends on the leadership and how they handle things. But as a whole, in, between the armed services and the oil and gas industry, I still think we're moving in the right direction. We're not moving backwards. I think it's getting better.
1: Yep. Absolutely. So once again, so we're getting different viewpoints on diversity. We've had more people write in about this topic than probably anything that we've ever talked about ever. Yeah. And so now I'm curious. So if you have have an opinion or you have a good experience or a bad experience or something you want to say about diversity in the industry, particularly in the field, that's where I think we're kind of focused on. Write in, let us know. I'm kind of curious to see, kind of see where this goes, to be honest, it's something that we should pay attention to. Up next, we've got a question from Mikey, who's a VP at Prime Rock. We are constantly looking for new areas to invest in, whether that be different counties in the Permian or a different leasehold. If you're running a long-term mineral investment firm, how would you pick areas that would continue to see investment from operators in the long run? I think Mikey should write us a check when we answer this question. (sighs) Okay. Let me uh, gather my thoughts. You want to take a stab at it first?
0: Yeah. So the thing is, what happens is a basin gets hot. When that basin gets hot, prices go up. And at some point, the hotness drives the prices past the point of being economically viable. People still buy, which just fuels the, that need to buy a mineral rights, right? It's sort of like the whole emu thing. Remember 10 years ago, everybody was uh, raising emus and they would raise them to sell the eggs to other people that wanted to raise emus. But there was no in game for the emus. So it imploded. And, you know, the Permian is probably right there right now. Other than the super majors who own the acreage. so, but you know, if I was looking at longer term, and, and it also depends what long term is. I'm gonna say long term means ten years. I would look hard at the Anadarko Basin, Oklahoma. The restriction there, the constraint there, is the infrastructure, and a lot of money and time is being put into that. I think you can see another boom there once the infrastructure gets in place. So I think you're just right ahead of it, just by a year, year or so. Um, that would be the first place I would look. Uh, from and by the way. Jake and I are not professional. Well, we are professionals, but don't take, don't invest any money based upon our vice. Go do your own due diligence, your own research.
1: So agreed. I don't have any insider information on, on any hot plays. I probably have just as much information as you, but in terms of what my process would be to find that as I would look at the data, I'd find good areas that people just haven't realized are good areas. The only way to do that is to crunch a significant amount of data and be a little bit contrarian right? You know, we were seeing a lot of the Permians, obviously it's extremely hot. It's probably too hot. I think it's a little bit overvalued, especially from a mineral perspective, just seeing some of the prices per acre that we're seeing. I think it's just absolutely astronomical. So I'd look at possibly some areas that are, haven't necessarily seen some love lately, but have a lot of potential. I think the Permian was the same way. Permian was a conventional field for a long time. And it wasn't until, you know, fracking came around that it became, you know, super popular again. And that, that became the hot play. You know, and so I think there's other there's other areas, but I think in order to to really make a good decision, it needs to be a data driven decision. And I think you can do a ton of research before you buy anything. That's um, yep. I'm sure you guys awesome. are doing that. But that's just that's exactly what I would do.
0: Yeah, that's awesome advice, Jake. Because you're right; a lot of people still tend to buy it based on emotions. Like
1: I think that's a great place instead of actually crunching the data. Or you can have a business model that's built 100 percent on selling to schmucks who are willing to pay you know <laughs> two times the valuation, which seems like that's what half the, the mineral buyers' business model is. So, but I would highly suggest against that because <laughs> once those guys bust, who's buying from you? Yep, agreed. All right, up next we got a question from James, who's a geoscience student at the University of Adelaide. I'm a geology student working hard to prepare for a career in oil and gas. I've heard you talk about renewables and their part in energy, but not much about nuclear energy. Does nuclear have potential to replace gas as the energy of the future? Love the show. Please keep doing what you're doing.
0: Hell yes, but it won't because of Greenpeace. I'll just put it on the table. So nuclear was real hot during the 70s, not just here in the U.S., but all over the world. And 70s, nuclear power production was way more dangerous and way less efficient than it is now. Greenpeace started – that's how Greenpeace got started, anti-nuclear, and so now from a – Emotional point of view, most people in the world, other than the Japanese, don't want nuclear electrical generations. It is by far the safest way to generate electricity. Believe it or not, if you look at the stats, it's long term. And now that we're going from fission to fusion, you're talking about exponential increase in the ability to produce electricity, and basically have almost nothing left over, right? And so, but politically and emotionally, the world doesn't want to fool with nuclear. It's really a, a darn shame. I'm hoping somewhere in the future, and it probably won't be in my lifetime, but somebody comes back and, and, you know, figures out how to change the opinion of most of the world because nuclear is a fantastic alternative. They just, nobody wants to do it because of Greenpeace.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: I'm going (laughs) to get some
1: hate mail on that one. Watch. Up next, we've got a question from William, who's an operations coordinator. He writes, in the last First Friday Q&A episode, you had a question from someone in the UK looking for a way to get experience that would aid him in breaking into scheduling, logistics, and inventory planning. I work in the inspection and testing set of the business, and we interface with schedulers daily. In fact, our role is very similar to theirs. Inspection companies could be a good way for your UK listener to get experience in hydrocarbon measurement laboratory quality testing and a general working knowledge of how cargos are physically moved in the field and some knowledge of commercial terms governing transfers i work at amspec competitors similar to us would be bureau veritas intertech and cayman cargo control and sgs maybe this would help them thanks for the great show and keep it up you gotta love our listeners jake here's
0: somebody took the time to help somebody else that he doesn't even know who it is this is awesome. So yeah, so William, if you go to the show notes, all these company names are listed in there so you can go do some research on them. you know what? We'll even throw William's email address in there if you want to reach out to him and just have a conversation with him. And we love this sort of stuff. We love when our listeners help our other listeners. This is this is how we are as an industry and this is how we are as you know, as our podcast family is is we're all here for each other. This is awesome. Good job, William.
1: All right. Do you want to take the next question? I have to. Okay. <laughs> and the reason I have
0: to is I can't pronounce the name first off. Ludwig has been a fan of our show for a long time. I actually appeared on his podcast. He's in or he's from the Netherlands. I don't think he lives in the Netherlands anymore. But he writes in all the time, and we appreciate it. And this time, we're going to actually gonna read his question give him a shout out. His company is Hoff- Profit. So H-O-F-P-R-O-F-I-T. Go check him out. He has a blog, podcast. He has some things, some really cool stuff he sells. My favorite thing is he's a conservative libertarian and a foodie. <laughs> I love that. And so his question is this, what is common sense and energy? I'll not say what anything on the US elections. That's something i leave to you two. But I hear a lot of stupid ideas being pitched <laughs> about common sense and energy. And Ludwig, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, we have our own politicians talking about they're could ban fracking. We have state government's Banning the use of natural gas, driving the cost of living up to the point that people can't live in their states. You know, we have politicians that don't understand basic physics talking about climate change. You know, if you can't tell me one of the three laws of thermodynamics, don't talk to me about climate change. You don't understand the basic science behind it, right? And so, uh, where's the common sense? With at least here in the U.S., it's not with our politicians. That's for darn sure, and. We also have this kind of same problem on our side. So for the longest time, the oil and gas industry, and this is a personal pet peeve of mine that that we're working on fixing. But for the longest time, Anytime somebody says something wrong about the oil and gas industry in public and whether that's on purpose or an accident, as an industry, we never correct them. And I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about just facts. We never talk about the good stuff we do, the schools we build, the prosperity drive, the global diseases we fight, the infrastructure we build, the prosperity we drive for for not just the people that work in our industry, but the people that support our industry, the hotel operators, the restaurants, owners, all that sort of stuff. So we need as an industry to own the fact that we don't do a good job and we need as an industry to fix it. And stay tuned, audience. We got something coming to start trying to fix this. But yeah, no common sense in energy, at least in in the US politician side. And the Canadian politician side and Jake we will probably talk about this next show. I just saw where the UK banned fracking.
2: Mm.
0: Are you kidding me? Do y'all want to keep being chained to Russia? Because that's what's going to happen when you do stuff like that. So yeah, no common sense, but hopefully that will change.
1: All right. I'll leave it at that. last question is from Calvin. who's president of A2 Engineering Group. I attended the IP to PO meeting last night and heard the speaker from Shell Ventures. Can you supply his name and the name of the venture firm with Shell that he is with? Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. I reached out to Gavin, Calvin and gave his name. I don't want to announce it on the show because this poor Shell Venture guys could get inundated <laughs> like crazy. But it was actually, a, we did this event, I guess it was last week and it was our most well-attended event we've ever done. My big shout out to our street team for coming in and helping volunteer to help check people in. But they came to me and they told me that Eventbrite app wasn't working. So I get all mad at Eventbrite and I go, look, Jake, we had hit our limit. We've never done that before. So it just shut down. But anyway, I reached out to Calvin and gave him the contact information. And Calvin, thanks for coming. I don't remember meeting you out there, but if you go to the next one, come say hi
1: to me. All right, guys. So thank you to everybody who wrote in. Great questions. Hope you enjoy the answers. If you have a question for next month's first Friday Q&A, just click the button in the notes below and we'll be glad to take that on the next show.
0: Let's talk about the next show. We're doing our, still our really cool IBM giveaway. I'm actually doing something really cool with IBM next week, a private event here in Houston. Jake, I'm actually interviewing one of their Ex-I mobile senior people in the Astros press box. How cool is that? That's pretty awesome. So if you want to get one of these really cool IBM shirts, go sign up. The links in our show notes. We spent some money on these. They each have a unique serial number, which, by the way, somebody reached out to me and said they won the shirt, but they didn't have they didn't see the serial number on the sleeve. That's because it's not on the sleeve. It's on the front of the shirt at the bottom of the pump jacket print right that's where it is and jake and i will be giving away some cool stuff actually really soon based upon those numbers and speaking of those numbers jake what's the weekly rig count look like
1: the weekly rig count is at drumroll what do you think is that 814 844 down two percent from the previous week
0: yeah. Not as much as I thought it was going to drop, but still a decent number. You heard me mention the street team. If you want to be our volunteer, we ask you to give us an hour worth of work a week. All you really do is help promote our social stuff. And then if you're geographically close, when we do one of our live events. We ask you to come volunteer at the flip side, you get to be part of our press team. If we go to a conference that are near you, just go to join the Facebook group. That's how we manage all that. And then speaking of managing all that BCD travel, Jake is doing something really cool. They're giving Starbucks coffee away to our listeners. You don't have to win it. They just give it away because they, they love us and they love our listeners. So Thanks. if you want to go... I know, it's really cool. If you want some Starbucks coffee, just click the link in the show note and uh, sign up. BCD Travel is our travel provider choice for this show and all of our other shows. They make our oil and gas traveling life so much easier. And then, if you want Jake and I to come speak at your event, your marketing kickoff, whatever, let us know. We've done a whole bunch of that. We love doing that at universities. Just reach out and we'll share the details. Jake already talked about the first Friday Q&A. If you're online, go ahead and go to the website, oilandgastisweek.com. Give us your email address and we promise not to spam you. Actually, that list was used for the first time and we let people know about this private IBM ExxonMobil thing we're doing. So if you would have been on that list, you would have got an invite. If you're not on the list, you need to go get on there. And then go join our LinkedIn group. I don't even know what the number is anymore, Jake, but Alex and Tim have just blown that thing up. It's the, the companion to this show and all of our other shows. Just go to LinkedIn, search for OGGN.com. Ready to get out of here, Jake? Let's do it. All right. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. And here are the events on deck.
2: Hey, everyone. Alex here with the events on deck for November. First of all, we had our best turnout ever for our latest happy hour in Houston with our panel discussion. So thanks to everyone who attended, and we hope to keep offering you guys value in the future. Be sure to listen here for any future happy hours. The events on deck for November include OGGN's second Denver happy hour on November 6th from 4 to 6 p.m. The cost of attendance is $20, a portion of which goes to local charities Safe House Denver and Oil Helping Hands. On November 12th at Minute Maid Stadium, IBM's Oil Field of Dreams, data, digitization, and disruption, this event is free for all OGGN subscribers. OGGN's Mark LaCour will be doing a live podcast with ExxonMobil and his 2020 oil and gas predictions. On November 12th through 14th is Procurement Week in Sydney, Australia. Our travel partner, BCD Travel, will be sponsoring Day 2 of Procurement Week in Sydney. Day 2 has content focused on the construction, mining, and energy sectors as well as an indirect procurement leaders forum, which encompasses travel. Industry leaders will be discussing value-driven procurement approaches, evolving technologies, and the changing landscape. And drinks are on BCD at the end of the day. The Houston Chapter API Energy Petroleum Club will be meeting on November 12th in Houston. Speaker Shane McElroy will be talking about the sustainability of electric fracturing. We have another free event on deck this month for our subscribers. The Topcoder Innovation Summit will be taking place on November 14th in Houston, Texas. This event is the premier innovation event for industry leaders. You'll have the opportunity to attend panels on innovation and emerging technologies and meet with the Ypro and Topcoder executive teams. Lastly, the Algeria Oil and Gas Summit is happening on November 19th through 21st this year. ALNAFT will be sharing onshore and offshore updates for Africa's leading gas producer and opportunities for independent oil and gas companies. And don't forget, if you guys would like to receive these events each month via email, click Get Mark's Monthly Events email link in the show notes of any OGGN podcast. Hope you guys have a great month.
0: Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.